Hello, hello, and welcome back after a very long hiatus to the second episode of Radio Nuclear, the podcast all about the science behind our natural and medical world. We focus on the biology, chemistry, and engineering, both physical and digital, that shape the world in which we know. I hope that you've all been keeping well over these difficult few months. However, if you are new here, I'm Aidan, a new PhD student in the CDT of Smart Medical Imaging, based at King's and Imperial Colleges in London, England. I myself am a biochemist and molecular biologist by trade, but have a keen interest in the variety of topics that I'm aiming to relay to you, the listener, through this series of podcasts. I hope that I can make science a little more accessible and interesting, so please send us any feedback about what you like and what we could do better, or if there's a topic you think we should cover, please get in touch. All of our social media links are in the description, or just send us an email to radionuclear.pod at gmail.com. Before we get into this week's episode, I'd quickly like to say a thank you to all of you that listened to the first episode and the support that you showed us. And those of you listening now, thank you very much for tuning in. I'd also like to say a thank you to the CDT's public engagement team, because without their support, this project would not be possible. In the last episode, we covered the basics of radioactivity, the different types, wave and particle emission, how much is harmful, and how it's unlikely we'll ever be able to harness radioactivity to make superheroes like the X-Men or the Incredible Hulk. This episode, we're continuing on the theme of radioactivity, where first we'll be talking about the types of emissions that I wasn't able to cover in the first episode, and then we'll be moving on to how and why radioactivity can be harmful to us, but also how we can use it for radiotherapy of cancer, a medical technique that is invaluable in the treatment of that disease. We'll also talk about an amazing figure from science history, George Washington Carver, and at the end, answer some of your questions. I've left some timestamps in the description if you want to skip ahead, but I hope you'll be able to sit down, relax, and learn a little more about our incredible world. So without further ado, let's get into episode two, Radiobiology. So yes, the first thing we'll talk about today is the other types of particle radiation that we didn't touch on in the first episode, as they will help us understand the later sections on radiotherapy and the nuclear imaging techniques, PET, and to a lesser extent, SPECT. Neutron radiation is the first emission we'll talk about. Neutrons are the other components of atomic nuclei, alongside protons, and as their name suggests, neutrons are neutral, carrying no charge. Because of this, they are less likely to directly ionise another atom, unlike the alpha and beta particles we spoke about in the first episode. Neutron emission is a mode of radioactive decay typical of radionuclides with neutron-rich nuclei. Due to their lack of charge, neutrons can be absorbed into other atomic nuclei, and this process can significantly destabilise the nucleus, and therefore neutron decay is the only particle radiation that can make another nucleus radioactively unstable. The neutron itself is inherently unstable outside of the regulation of an atomic nucleus, and could be considered to be in an excited state. Emitted neutrons will decay to a proton and an electron, which gets fired off. When a neutron in a nucleus becomes excited, this transformation from a neutron to a proton and electron occurs with the electron being ejected from the nucleus. If this does sound familiar, it's because that electron is a beta particle, a type of radiation we discussed in the first episode. Potentially the most common use of neutrons is their role in nuclear reactions, like the ones found in nuclear power plants. In nuclear power plants, neutrons get released into a nuclear reactor and can initiate the uranium fission reaction, the reactions that were occurring at the Chernobyl power plant. The neutron bombardment causes a variety of nuclear reactions, each giving out energy, typically heat, which heats water in the system, turning it to steam, which drives a turbine. And there you are. Who knew nuclear power was so easy? 
Of course, it's not quite that easy. The tight regulation of these reactions is required to prevent the escalation of spontaneous reactions occurring, which is what eventually happened at Chernobyl all those years ago. Next up, we'll talk about positrons, nifty little things that can be thought of as positively charged electrons. Positrons are emitted when protons convert to neutrons. In this process, a positron and a neutrino, a neutral particle about the same mass as an electron, or basically nothing, are both released. Positrons whiz out as an emitted particle and zip around the space surrounding the nucleus it was just emitted from. The distance the positron travels is dependent on the energy it carries from the proton to neutron conversion. The energy of the positron decreases as it travels until it is at a low enough velocity to encounter an electron of a nearby atom. When positrons come into contact with electrons, they collide and annihilate each other. The result of this collision is the release of energy in the form of two annihilation photons, or gamma photons, or gamma rays, depending on where you want to, which way you want to look at it. These photons shoot out of the collision at near polar opposite directions. It is the detection of these gamma photons at an energy of 511 kilo electron volts, or KeV, that serves us in positron emission tomography, or PET scans. By injecting small amounts of positron emission radionuclides into our body, we are able to pinpoint where they go by tracing the gamma photons back to their point of origin. The more positrons emitted from one area, the brighter that region appears in medical scans. The goal of radiochemists and radiobiologists is to identify disease markers which can be targeted by chemicals or proteins, such as antibodies, by attaching positron-emitting radionuclides to these things. We can light up the diseased parts of our bodies and look at them using our scanners. These tools are known as radio tracers. In the setting of cancer, we come across the most widely used radio tracer, FDG. Now FDG, or fluorodeoxyglucose, is typically labelled with fluorine 18, a positron emitting radionuclide. And from a chemical standpoint, fluorodeoxyglucose, which I'll now refer to as FDG, is very similar to glucose in its structure, what we would call an analogue. Now cancers have a high glucose consumption, more so than most healthy tissues. So when we inject FDG into a patient, cancers appear bright in the images. And this means that doctors can see how big a tumour is, how advanced it is, and whether it's spread to other parts of the body, all without the need for an operation. The final process I'd like to talk about in the radioactive theory part of this podcast is electron capture. This is where a nucleus brings an electron from a closely circling ring into it. The electron combines with a proton to form a neutron and releases a neutrino and some extra energy in the form of an X-ray. When electron capture occurs, it leaves a gap in the electron space which needs to be filled. Hopefully you recall from your science at school that electrons encircle a nucleus and one of the outer electrons from these rings drops in to fill the gap. However, this change in energies in the electron orbits or shells can lead to something called the Auger effect. Now the Auger effect is what happens when an electron from the disrupted electron shells is ejected. This electron takes on the energy which is left when an outer electron drops in to fill the gap. This excess amount of energy means that the electron can't be withheld by the atom and so is ejected flying out into space. In another one of my crazy analogies, you could think of an atom like a factory. Now bear with me here. So the nucleus of the cell is the central office where they do all the admin. And outside it, they have the electrons which do the, the manual work. And the closer you get to the central office, the higher up you are. Now, one day, one of the head workers on the floor 
gets invited into head office and gets a promotion. And behind them, they leave their gap of their job. And so someone behind them then fills it. And that leaves a wake of gaps of jobs behind them until eventually once someone in the outer shell is left with more and more work to do that they've got to cover. And that increases the pressure on them. Until one day, they're like, I've had enough of this. And they leave in a huff. And, you know, they just don't want to work there anymore because the amount of work they've got to do is, is so much. And that is our auger electron, something that just kicks off in, in a rage. And as we'll see later on, these auger electrons uh, leave a trail of destruction in their path. Okay, that's the first bit of science theory done for today. Now I'd like to move on to a new section I'm calling Shoulders of Giants. The term Shoulders of Giants is not just a reference to the album released by Oasis in 2000, but it is a phrase that is a favourite of mine, and incredibly important to the field of science. It means that today's discoveries and advances are only possible because of those that came before us. The phrase was made famous by Sir Isaac Newton, who said, If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. For the foreseeable episodes, I will be highlighting black scientists, engineers, and inventors that have shaped the world in which we know. Unfortunately, like many other fields, Science and science history has been dominated by the white man. In an effort to reverse some of this damage, I hope that highlighting some of these amazing people will help us recognise the contributions of people of colour in science and engineering, in line with the Black Lives Matter movement, which has become so prominent in these last few months. For those that have followed our social media, you will be familiar with who we'll be highlighting today. For more sneak preaks, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram and on Facebook. But today's giant is George Washington Carver, an African-American scientist and inventor. His story, as you'll come to realise, is quite an incredible one. As a result of being born into slavery in Missouri, America, Washington Carver's birthday is unknown, but thought to be sometime in the early 1860s. The abolishment of slavery in 1865 in Missouri quickly followed George's birth. Now his early life is understandably distressing, so I would advise those who are interested to look at those details privately. But what is certainly notable of George's character is that at a young age he decided to go to school. George travelled 10 miles to the nearest school for black children where he was accepted into a home with a spare room. It is here where George changed how he was known, from Carver's George denoting that he was his master's possession to George Carver. At the age of 13, George was fostered into a loving home but was unfortunate enough to witness the murder of a black man by a group of white men, prompting his further travels. Eventually, George ended up in Minneapolis, Kansas, where he earned a diploma. Following this, George got accepted into Highland University in Kansas, but upon arrival, was turned away due to the colour of his skin. It is this event that initiated Carver's pursuit of science and agriculture. Carver relocated to a homestead where he cared for vast amounts of land and crops. In 1888, in his 20s, George obtained a loan of $300 to study. He invested time in art and music, but his art teacher, Etta Budd, encouraged him to pursue his love of botany. George began at Iowa State Agriculture University, now Iowa State, in 1891. He was the first black student at the university, and he graduated with a bachelor's in agriculture three years later. Carver stayed on at Iowa State, receiving a master's degree and national recognition for his contributions to agriculture. In his long list of trend-setting achievements, Carver became the first black teacher at Iowa State. In 1896, Booker T. Washington invited Carver to Tuskegee University to lead the agriculture department, a position he held for 47 years. Carver took pride in teaching black Americans how to live off the land and, more importantly, make money doing so. 
taking a mobile classroom of his own design around the local area to further the outreach of his programme. You may be wondering, this is an extraordinary story, but what, does he, what did he actually do? Well, Carver developed techniques to replenish soil that had once been home to the cotton plants that had covered the plantation on which he was born. By understanding nitrogen cycles and crop rotation, Carver found new uses for the land that his family were once enslaved to and brought about change for black families, enabling them to make money from farming. For his amazing contributions, Carver received praise from President Franklin D. Roosevelt and got accepted to the Royal Society of Arts here in London, one of only a handful of Americans to do so at the time. Carver was famously an advocate of peanuts, although not the inventor of peanut butter, as many wrongfully claim. Through his life, Carver was pragmatic and frugal. Upon his death, on the 5th of January 1943, he left $60,000, the equivalent of $1.1 million in today's money, to Tuskegee University to help other black men and women succeed in life. Carver was buried next to his former colleague, Booker T. Washington, at Tuskegee University, and his headstone reads, He could have added fortune to fame, but caring for neither, he found happiness and honour in being helpful to the world. I hope you found that story pretty interesting. Uh, researching it, I thought it was an abs absolutely incredible story and one that I was annoyed that I'd never heard before. Um, hopefully you'll be able to tell your friends and family about this incredible man, George Washington Carver, and his contributions to American agriculture and the way in which we approach farming in today's society. He really was a trendsetter in that sense. If you think of a figure or know of a figure that is particularly prominent in history but has been forgotten by our textbooks, please write in and let us know and we'll feature them on a future episode of this podcast. I'm really keen to have your input as an audience into this podcast and hopefully we can spread as much knowledge and information and positivity uh, on this topic as possible through these interactions. We'll now step away from botany and go back to the biology of how radiation affects our cells. And actually, we have a question on this very topic, so let's give it a listen. Hi, my name's Lucy, and I want to know how can radiation can be both harmful and beneficial to humans? That's a great question. Thank you, Lucy. First, we'll talk about how radiation damages our cells. There are two mechanisms by which radiation can affect our cells, known as direct and indirect damage. Direct damage occurs when radioactive waves or particles directly hit DNA or any other component of our cells, in the way I described the football or soccer goal last episode. Although less likely than indirect effects due to the relatively low chance of collision of radioactive particles and DNA, the consequences can be significant. Indirect effects are far more common, as these occur when radioactive particles interact with water which is one of the main components of our cells. When ionising radiation comes into contact with a water molecule, it causes the molecule to fragment due to the energy input and destabilisation of the bonds between the hydrogens and the central oxygen atoms. The fragments produced are either hydrogen or hydroxyls, a hydroxyl being an oxygen-hydrogen pair. These fragments are typically radicals, meaning they have an unpaired electron in their outermost shell. This makes them incredibly reactive, if two hydroxyl radicals combine, it makes H2O2, or hydrogen peroxide, which is toxic to our cells. The damage done to cells by direct and indirect radiation can vary depending on the amount of radiation, how close the radiation is to the person or cell, and what cell type is actually being targeted. Blood cells and blood cell producing organs are most sensitive to radiation, 
whilst muscle and nerve cells are slightly less affected. If the damage done to cells is severe, it can be irreversible, leading to cell death, but partial damage can be reversible. See, our cells are incredibly clever and they have many ways in which to repair themselves. When damage does occur to our DNA, our cells uses the machinery at hand to try and fix it, but when multiple sites of damage occur that don't lead to cell death, or if the machinery to repair the cell isn't being recruited properly, our cells develop mutations, and it is these mutations that can lead to the development of cancer. But although radiation can cause cancer, most famously when ultraviolet light from the sun or sunbeds causes skin cancer, radiation can also be used to treat cancer. And this brings us very nicely to our question from our friend of the show, Josh, who called in last time, if you remember. Now, let's listen to his question. Um, quick question about radiotherapy. How does it work? How can it be used as, a, um, as something to cure cancer without killing us? Because if it involves radiation, then surely it's really dangerous. Thanks a lot. Once again, another great question from Josh and his sultry tones there. So radiotherapy works by causing that irreversible damage to cancer cells that I mentioned just a minute ago. By obliterating cancer cells with radiation, we can kill them off. This happens because either we use a high dose of X-ray radiation as a beam, which gets fired directly onto the cancer from outside of our bodies, or we use internal radiotherapy, where we put radionuclides, normally alpha emitters, as close to the cancer as possible to cause huge amounts of damage within cancer cells, much like a Trojan horse. The most common form of radiotherapy is the external beam radiation I just mentioned. X-rays are focused onto the cancer to zap it away, and as we'll come to learn in future episodes, technology has allowed us to reduce the dose of radiation to healthy cells nearby dramatically. This means that over time, we hope that the side effects of radiotherapy are much lesser. Internal radiotherapy, also known as brachytherapy, is usually performed with alpha-emitting radionuclides. As you may remember, these cause huge amounts of damage to cells. Another type of radionuclide that researchers are incredibly interested in are Auger electron emitters. Auger electrons obviously being the thing we mentioned earlier. Because these particles are low energy, the hope is that by delivering them close to DNA, we'll be able to cause immense destruction of cancer cells, but they won't travel far enough to damage healthy tissue. The challenge at the moment is ensuring the Auger electrons are being released close enough to the DNA to enable this damage to occur which is easier said than done. The other types of external radiotherapy use proton or neutron beams. However, these are relatively new techniques. These particles are less energetic than the photons used in X-ray beam radiotherapy. So the hope is that like internal radiotherapy, the dose that these beams cause to healthy tissues will be dramatically less. Altogether, the number of radioactivity-based approaches at our disposal are vast and is helping to improve how cancer is treated which brings us on to the topic for next week's podcast. We'll be talking about the C word, cancer. What it is, why it's so common, and how we get it, and some of the ways we're seeking to treat the awful disease. So please, if you have any questions, please send them in to us on our social media sites or by email. The final part of today's podcast will be answering a question we had from Tim in Coventry, who asked via our Instagram, what is my favourite radioactivity fact? Well, Tim, it's the fact that radioactivity can actually be measured in bananas. Now this might sound crazy, but bear with me. See, bananas have naturally occurring radioactive isotopes in them, mainly potassium-40. But don't worry, the dose you get from eating a banana is negligible, with one banana equivalent dose equal to 0.1 microsieverts. In truth, 
you'd need thousands of bananas to reach the dose of a CT scan, for example. Around 70,000, actually. So the measurement is actually more of just a fun one than having any real practical applications. And it's there to show that there's radiation all around us and it actually has very little effect on our lives. And actually, this is just a little teaser, this mention of bananas, to a future guest we're going to have on this podcast in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for that. Okay, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to tune in to next week's episode and send in any questions you have about cancer. We'll also be posting some photos on our social media and our giants of science for next week. For now, I'll leave you with the words of this week's giant, George Washington Carver. Education is the key to unlock the golden door of freedom. Thanks for listening. Catch you on the next episode. Goodbye.